Hello and welcome to the Social Entrepreneurship Diaries. This podcast is produced by SE Lab, the MS International Research Network and Impact Hub Amsterdam. My name is Andrea Barbosa and today I am proudly hosting the last episode of this series. On the menu, governance, ownership and participation. To introduce today's topic, I have to go all the way back to the first episode. Let me explain. The term social entrepreneurship rose to public attention in the 80s when initiatives such as the Grameen Bank came to life. Although consensus still lacks about what social entrepreneurship is or is not, the Anglo-Saxon world adopted the term and used it to theorize, describe and promote a range of economic initiatives aimed at solving social problems. The Social Entrepreneurship School, let's call it this way, puts its focus on the goals of the organization. They must be social first and foremost, and on the often innovative means deployed to reach them. The structure of the organization, its governance, is secondary. However, as I noted on the first episode with the help of some scholars, the roots of European social entrepreneurship lie in the cooperative movement which emerged hand-in-hand with the Industrial Revolution. In cooperatives, governance is central. Many cooperatives produce just the same goods and services as any other company, but ownership and decision-making are very different. When I was researching cooperatives for the first episode, I spoke with Elisa Terrazzi, a development officer at CICOPA, the International Organization of Industrial, Artisanal and Service Producers Cooperatives. She told me that workers' cooperatives showed more resistance and resilience during the 2008 crisis than regular companies. Job loss was much lower. Indeed, if employees are also the owners, then job preservation becomes central. Worker cooperatives are created for their members, and the members of the worker cooperative are the workers, their employees. So the first mission that a worker cooperative always uh, tries to accomplish in different ways and strategy is to keep jobs because of their mission, they are more prone than other types of enterprise to struggle with uh, against the crisis and to find uh, alternative solutions. And does it always work or were there cooperatives that were forced to close their doors during the crisis, for instance? Well, it can happen. It's not, uh, uh, let's say, a taboo. The basic difference is that uh, worker members decide to do that. Is a strategy, is a choice that is uh, taken by the owners of the enterprise. It's not uh, a decision which is vertically taken by one owner against his or her employees. What also happens, which is very different uh, from other types of enterprise, is that also when this happens, Behind the cooperatives, there is always a wider uh, system, which is the federation, local federation or national federation, that tries to find a solution for these workers. This is something that doesn't happen in other types of enterprises. And this is something that we think is the strong added value of uh, the cooperative system. 
That cooperatives should cooperate amongst themselves is one of the seven cooperative principles that go all the way back to 1844 when the first modern cooperative opened in Rochdale, England. Another principle is member economic participation. At least part of the capital must be the common property of the cooperative and members receive limited compensation or none on membership capital. And of course, the principle of democratic member control. Although one member, one vote doesn't always apply, there must be a structural concern for democratic decision-making. I asked Elisa Terrazzi if having everybody participate in decision-making wasn't just inefficient and time-consuming. She thinks that slowing down is exactly what we need in order to achieve efficiency in the long term. Cooperative should be a source of inspiration for, a, let's say, a turnaround in people's mindset. Uh, because um, a democratic and people-drive decision process uh, should be considered as an investment for the world society, a long-term impact strategy able to combine um, economic interests with social and environmental concerns. Uh, so, for example, if there is a lesson we should learn from the crisis, the financial and economic crisis that flared up in 2008, is that we dramatically need more time for democracy. We dramatically need more locally rooted and job-friendly real economy. Because the time that we invest on this approach today will be largely compensated in the future by the fact of living in a more equal and sustainable society. Cooperatives, as well as mutual societies, are run by directors who are elected by members. Core strategy moves must be approved in general meetings. Is this enough to ensure good governance? Not necessarily. I have just read a little book called La Nouvelle Alternative by Philippe Frémaux. He is a journalist and editor at the French magazine Alternatives Économiques, which is organized as a cooperative. He recalls that in 2006, two French cooperative banks decided to create a common subsidiary, Natixis, and take it to the stock market. Natixis traded in the same rotten financial products as every other capitalist bank. About 3 million small shareholders ended up losing 90% of their investment. In this case, the cooperative governance was no shield against toxic management. What happened? Frémaux shows that democratic implication in cooperatives, just like in the rest of society, is often bland, there's little pluralism. During elections, having one single list to choose from, the same as last year, is a common thing. Charismatic directors can do what they want. So Frémaux recommends something you've probably heard about, multi-stakeholder governance. In this model, the organization opens up to the community. Customers, local government, volunteers, all groups and institutions somehow concerned by an organization may have a say in its management. This notion is quickly becoming a governance standard. (music) 
I must now tell you about someone I met here in the Netherlands who has spent a great deal of time thinking about organizations and their governance. He summed up his thoughts and put them in a box. Quite literally. You'll get what I mean in just a couple of minutes. His name is Henry Mentink. In the 90s, he started car sharing informally with a group of friends and the project grew into a company called MyWheels. Today, MyWheels is a pool of a few thousand cars in which owners, customers and employees share roles as well as rides. We found out that you can also give your customers a role in your organization. For instance, when every car we put in the streets has an, uh, a car manager, but that is one of the, the customers. Uh, he gets uh, a few uh, little bonus uh, to do it. Uh, so he is customer, he uses the car, but also he helps us to clean the car or to repair. Um, but also customer can finance, uh, so invest in our uh, company sharing cars but also sharing profit and sharing responsibility and so that, and in that way you have more a community with their own interest and they also in that way take more care of the cars than when they just hire a car and so for me the new economy the relation is an important aspect to build communities that i think that will be the the business of the future it is interesting to know that MyWheels started up as a cooperative, but is no longer one. Henry Mentink was disappointed with how the democratic process happened in practice, and his lament echoes Fremo's critique. We stopped it as a cooperation, and it is now a sociocratic foundation. And that's a foundation that goes one step further than a cooperation. Because when you have a cooperation, you have... Uh, one meeting a year eh, with all the members, but when you have thousand members, not all members will come to the meeting. I sometimes say, when you have thousand members, 50 people will come to drink coffee with cake or to complain, but <laughs> there's no real interaction between the company, the employees, the director and the customers. So I wanted to have real cooperation and sociocracy worked out a way to arrange that. I was totally unfamiliar with sociocracy. It was in a Dutch school in the 50s and then later in an electrical company that this kind of governance was first experimented. Today it is applied worldwide, although in a very small scale. Unlike democracy, there are no votes and no majorities. Instead, decisions are made through consensual non-rejection of a proposed measure. The organization is made of semi-autonomous groups, or circles, which are interconnected. This model was a better fit with Mentink's organizational ideas, which he continued developing until he came up with something that he named the Source Plan. Because he's a visual kind of person, he decided that rather than a text, his ideas would be best communicated in the form of a wooden box. This box is a fascinating object. I urge you to take a look at the photos on our website. It is a cube with a window on one of its sides and it can be fully unfolded until flat. Every side of the cube corresponds to one dimension of organizational life. There is, for instance, nature, time, energy. 
Every dimension has an outside and an inside. And this is really the major proposition of the box, to look at an organization in a holistic way, considering both its material life and its soul, so to speak. Here's an example around dimension number three, human. Who are involved in the company? Uh, not only your employees, but also the customers, the stakeholders. Uh, and on the inside, you look at the talents of people. For instance, you can use that when you think about combining inside and outside. When you ask to, uh, people to write a CV, not only with what you did, but also your inside. What are your dreams and wishes? Uh, so that you know when people come to your company that they have a sort of uh, experience and education and, uh, but also have an insight, wishes they bring to your company. So that's important to know that. Henry Mentink is now developing another social venture, something that he calls a village trade center, a house in the countryside where you can shop for local products but also host seminars. He applied his box plan to the project from the very beginning and here's how it preserves the unity principle that lies at the heart of the box. So the box has one window in the part we call unity. And how do you protect in your company not working only on the outside but also looking at the inside? And you can do that with, uh, with ceremonies or making art together or... An, uh, have a day uh, in the woods uh, together with all the, the employees. Uh, so you have to write down that, that you every now and then take a uh, look at in the inside. Uh, uh, what we do here, uh, we are now in the Veerhuis, the ferry house. Every change of a season, and so the 21st of December or 21st of March, we do a fire ceremony outside the building and then we have a, a firekeeper. Uh, uh, he was appointed by the Indians in North America, so he, he's authorized to do the fire. Uh, and then we, with about 20, 30 people, we stand around the fire and we thank the season that's uh, passed and uh, we speak our wishes for the next uh, season. Uh, so that's... Uh, very helpful to have also a rhythm in your company. So every quarter we have a, a fire ceremony. It's very simple, uh, you throw your wishes in the fire and uh, pick a moment that you think about the inside. That's an important aspect also for new companies. A fire ceremony may sound too esoteric in the context of governance practices. Still, this box, with its connotations of art, craft and awareness is a call for humbleness and creativity in the organizational world. concept you cannot do without these days when you talk about governance is the commons. Last month I went to the MS Karl Polanyi conference in Paris. There was a lot of talk about the commons. The richness and potential of the concept was one of my main discoveries there, along with John Dewey's notion of creative democracy, to which I will come back in a little while. 
I have learned about American political economist Eleanor Ostrom, who received a Nobel Prize in 2009 for her work on the commons. She rehabilitated the concept, which had been dismissed as a tragedy in the 60s. You've probably heard of the tragedy of the commons. It is a parable popularized by Garrett Hardin, an ecologist that worried about natural resources being destroyed because of individual interests. In his story, a common open pasture would necessarily be exhausted because every sheep owner would put as many sheep there as he could. It would not be in their immediate interest to consider whether the sheep of others would have enough to eat, and so every individual would take as much as he could until there was nothing left. What Eleanor Ostrom showed is that the tragedy outcome is a misunderstanding. She did extensive fieldwork on existing commons, and her insight, if I understand correctly, is that a commons is much more than a resource. It is a mode of governance. I will now give the floor to American writer and activist David Bollier, who published several books on this subject. He also adapted his college course on the commons into a podcast series that, as a commoner himself, he shared online, and of which I selected the extracts you are about to hear. One simple way of thinking about the commons is about those resources that we inherit from previous generations and that we have a duty to protect and improve and pass on to future generations. In a very simple way, it's about shared resources that we depend upon for our essential needs. And these can be anything from natural resources to uh, digital online information and culture, uh, as well as local civic life and uh, things like open spaces and parks and libraries. Now, there's no uh, single paradigm of the commons. They uh, vary immensely, particularly based on what type of resource they are. But they do all tend to integrate economic production or provisioning with social cooperation and personal participation and a certain set of ethics or even ethical idealism into a, a single paradigm of, of self-help, uh, collective gain, and the freedom and emancipation that flows from that. In a sense, the commons is a parallel economy and social order that uh, quietly affirms that there's a different way of ordering things than the market. Eleanor Ostrom studied community irrigation systems in western Nepal, among several other commons practices. Farmers there share a water source and collectively manage the canals through which the water flows into their fields. Every farmer is entitled to a certain flow time and must, for instance, perform cleaning duties in order to keep the infrastructure running. Abusers get sanctions. Ostrom's research shows that farm productivity there depends less on the quality of the irrigation infrastructure than on the level of participation in communal management. That this system works in practice with as outcome a sustainable resource and better performance than state-imposed water regulations is something that ought to spark our reflection and our imagination. So the talk of the commons also helps us begin to explore new relationships among ourselves. We're not simply isolated individual consumers. We can begin to collaborate and develop social trust 
uh, with each other in the management of a given resource. Uh, water, software, land, community events. And we can start to self-organize and manage and take control of them outside of the market and state. Naturally, this implies a different role between us and the state. No longer do we see the state as the only vehicle for improving our lives or intervening. We can take some control and responsibility ourselves. And I think this is an important source of renewal in contemporary political life, where we have so much gridlock and corruption and cynicism that government is not seen as a credible vehicle uh, for moving things forward, at least for ordinary citizens. I share this enthusiasm. The Commons really speaks to me, and as a concept, it helps me envision new possibilities for being together, creating together, and also giving nature some respite together. But sometimes I just sigh and say to myself that this is wishful thinking. I used to live in a condominium in Paris where owners share an inner patio. We had some nice parties there with all the neighbors. But just a few days ago, one of them was telling me how things got sour around the use of the patio. Issues like level of noise, hour of noise, objects on the patio and its use by non-residents caused camps to be formed and an I-don't-greet-so-and-so kind of warfare to be waged. We humans can be so petty. Are we good enough for something as ambitious as the commons? Now, this is the time to bring in John Dewey, whose ideas I was happy to discover at the MS conference I told you about. He's an American philosopher born in 1859, who, amongst other things, worked extensively on the connection between democracy and education. He understands democracy not as an external institutional arrangement, but as a way of personal life. All individuals are equal, not because each of their votes is worth the same, but because each of them has a unique personhood, a unique capacity for self-realization. Democracy means being in the world in a personal way and being fully open to each other's similarly personal ways of being in the world. This state of being precedes the emergence of truly democratic institutions and it must be fostered in individuals through education. Dewey's critique of the educational system as oriented towards the preparation of a skilled workforce rather than self-thinking, democratically competent individuals is still very much up to date. Schools, he says, should be the place where cooperative experimental intelligence is practiced and built. So perhaps the answer to my question, are we good enough, lies here, education. Creative democracy, as John Dewey names it, is an educational project and education should be the main arena of politics. Let's now put the books away and measure how reality is sometimes stranger than philosophy. In Austria, a network named Otello has been growing for a few years now. Otellos are multifunctional spaces situated mainly in rural areas where people come together to do basically anything they want. There are a couple of ground rules. In order to get an Otello going, there must be a group of five people, called the Magic Five, who are willing to become hosts of the space. 
Then the network helps in trying to get hold of a free space, usually made available by local authorities. And then anything can happen. Markus Luga, one of the Magic Five in the city of Linz, recalls his first contact with the Otello concept. My Otello moment was when I saw on a, in a kitchen, because the heart of an Otello is always the kitchen. I watched or observed two people talk to each other there at my first visit in the Otello for Klapuk, and it was like a, a 65-year-old uh, professor from a, a polytechnical school and a 16-year-old breakdancer, <laughs> and they talked on on the same level or on the same eye level about, I don't know exactly, about politics or something. And it struck me that there is a place where two very different people who normally don't uh, meet each other in, in public spaces come together and exchange ideas and, and uh, knowledge. And that's how I was infected by the Otello. There is an Otello in the village of Forchdorf in which a group of 3D printing fans partnered up with a local school. Now the school hosts a 3D printing lab, which is meant for students as well. Otello initiatives range from building Tesla coils to vegan cooking to the Democracy Repair Café that takes place in Linz. Democracy is maybe somewhere a little bit broken, but don't throw it away. <laughs> maybe it's still a good idea. So let's try to, to approach it on a personal level. Where can I, or as a group, uh, experience and also train democracy as a as a tool and of course there are a lot of things from art of hosting there but also they on another level they try to install an office for democracy in the parliament <laughs> so I, I really like this project because i think uh, that's exactly the approach we try to support not to do it yourself but to do it together the Otello concept really intrigues me because it is so minimalist and flexible. It is about providing an environment in which bottom-up initiatives can flourish and building bridges between those initiatives and institutional partners. This is especially urgent in rural areas where no incubators or co-working spaces are to be found, but the purpose of the network is not to provide a countryside version of those things. The Magic Five are concentrated in being good hosts. They are not concentrated at raising money. So if there is a project and it grows and they want to have some funding or something or support by a company, then we try with all we have and all the connection and the network to connect them with the right people. But we are not like a, a service. <laughs> Nowhere in the whole Otello universe it, there is this um, service approach that somebody has to do something for somebody else. The whole thing is very entrepreneurial. So if you want to, to have something, go for it. It's very self-regulated, user-generated. And if it's hosted in a personal and warm way, I say it, then it works. As we were Skyping, Marcus described the Otellos as a safe space, a freed space, freed from the pressure to consume or to perform, a place to just be. 
I am happy to finish this episode and the whole podcast series on this note, on a blank page, so to say. I started this podcast out of unrest. I often feel confused, revolted, despaired by the ways of the world. In social entrepreneurship, I found a powerful proposition for change. The way I see it, social entrepreneurship is about individuals and groups taking action to solve problems or creating better ways to be in the world. It is about rebelling, not conforming to the status quo and getting past naming the culprits. It is about creativity and self-realization. It is a way to do politics outside party politics, which are often so vulgar. Social entrepreneurship does not reject the market, rather invites it to change too. Along with these positive features, I also found in social entrepreneurship a number of things I dislike. The cult of success, a sense of moral superiority, and a belief in progress as humankind's destiny. This is a generalization, of course. Much of what I encountered had none of these flaws. What I learned in the making of this series is that I want to keep making it. I want to keep offering myself blank pages to think new thoughts and connecting to people who are inventing new ways of living together, us humans, with the rest of nature. I want to remain open and invite everyone to do the same. So I want to thank SE Lab, MS and Impact Hub Amsterdam, co-producers of this podcast, for their support. Many thanks to our guests Elisa Terrazzi, Henry Mentik and Marcus Luga and to David Bollier for sharing his audio files. In our website sediaries.org you'll find all the references concerning this episode and more. Credit for the music we use on our podcast goes to Poddington Bear, Alex Fitch and Adam Seltzer. Thank you for listening. Thank you.